Hello, and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. In a letter to her close friend, the novelist Ramon Cuno, in 1947, Iris writes this, Can I really exploit the advantages, instead of as hitherto suffering the disadvantages, of having a mind on the borders of philosophy, literature and politics? When we consider Iris as a writer and thinker, politics is almost certainly not the first subject that comes to mind. Literature, philosophy, life writing, even theology would probably come before thinking about politics. But throughout her life, she was actively engaged in considering politics in all its forms in her non-fiction and indeed fictional work. Um, with essays um, as, an, as a young person on her Irish identity, she wrote an essay called If I Was the Foreign Secretary and How, how I Would Govern the Country, um, while she was at Badminton School, a membership of the League of Nations Junior Branch, and so on. So she's involved in politics very early on in her life. And she was an active presence in politics and indeed a member of the Communist Party during her time at Oxford and, of course, active in a variety of areas later on, which we'll be discussing. Joining me today to discuss Iris and politics are Professor Gary Browning, who's Professor of Political Thought at Oxford Brookes University. He's the author of Why Iris Murdoch Matters, which is essential reading on this and many other topics that came out last year. And also the editor of Murdoch on Truth and Love, which came, is a uh, collected essays that came out in 2018. He's also published books on Hegel, Collingwood, Leotard, um, Global Theory, Bob Dylan, and um, one that's sitting next to me, The History of Political Thought. Hello, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mark. Yeah. We've also got okay. um, Leslie Jameson, who's a researcher at Queen's University in Canada, and her focus is on Murdoch's 1950s writing on mind, morals, and aesthetics. And Leslie's work on the educational relevance of Murdoch's perfectionism have just been published in the Journal of um, the Philosophy of Education. Hello, Leslie. Hi there. Hi. Uh, Leslie's also a uh, political activist, and she'll be um, talking about that in um, detail later on. And um, finally, um, Vic Seidler is a Meritus Professor of Social Theory in the Department of Sociology at Goldsmiths University of London. And he's written widely on ethics and social theory, gender with a particular focus on masculinities, on the Holocaust and cultural memories. His work includes uh, material on Kant, a respect and injustice, the moral limits of modernity, um, liberty, Simone Weil and Marxism, Jewish philosophy West and Western culture, remembering 9-11, terror trauma and social theory, and much more. And his most recent book has been Making Sense of Brexit, Democracy, Europe and Uncertain Futures. That came out in 2018. Hello, Vic. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Good. Thank, thank you all so much for, um, for, for joining me today. Um, welcome to you all. Gary, your most recent book opens with a quote that I've just read from the letter to Kuno. Could you say something about that and also about um, your own engagement with, um, with Murdoch's work? Yeah, um, I'm happy to do so and I'm, I'm really happy to take part in this discussion. I mean, I think one of the um, crucial things about Iris Murdoch is that she, she covers uh, a wide territory and she brings to everything she kind of thinks about and talks about um, a kind of penetrating intellect and an energy which is, um, which is marvellous. Um, yeah, I mean, just to say something, and I'll come back to the Cano quote, um, how I get, got interested in Murdoch, I think, reflects her, the breadth of her kind of appeal and of her interests. I remember watching as a kind of teenager, um, BBC TV versions of the Bell and Unofficial Rose, and Unofficial Rose, both of which are marvelous in kind of evoking complex spiritual situations and kind of um, a sophisticated, mature view of love, and indeed of reaching out existentially for kind of new horizons. And 
I, I was captivated by those. And then I also remember reading very carefully Murdoch and Plato when I was doing a PhD on Hegel and Plato many years later at the LSE. And I found her work on Plato marvelous for cutting through a lot of kind of crusty, dry as dust stuff to focus on really interesting things in Plato, the nature of metaphor and kind of the ambiguities of Plato's position. So, and I also read The Sovereignty of Good and some of her essays on moral thought, which were really kind of quite, quite appealing because they actually talked about what it was like to be good or how one might be good rather than um, losing oneself in meta theories. Um, but all the while I was, I was um, looking at um, Murdoch in those ways, I was reading her novels and reading some essays, and it, it became clear to me that she was someone who had a rounded view of life. I think she wanted to kind of come to terms with lived experience in the 20th century. And to do so, she did focus upon the political world as much as the personal and private world. And, that I think is often underrated in Murdoch's thought. Um, and that Canoe says that in 47, she's recognizing that she's got a mind on the borders of politics, literature, and philosophy. And throughout her life, you can see that she led a life which is at the center of many of the things that were going on in the 20th century. Um, at the end of the war, after having worked in the civil service, she worked for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, in which there was a kind of a concern to help, as it were, and cater for the, the refugees who were stranded and kind of um, um, had to experience great misery and, misery and humiliation at the end of that Second World War. And she was right there working with them in Austria. And, um, and that left a big impact upon her life. And you can see her taking with her, her views on, on migration, refugees, the Holocaust in, uh, in, in her novels. And um, I, I've mentioned The Flight from the Enchanter in 56, mm. which is a kind of sustained essay on, or oh, not essay, novel, on the different forms of migration in the 50s. And it really is a, a marvellous kind of evocation of the complexities and the sensitivities of that situation. And through her novels, we see in The Nice and the Good and The Message to the Planet, we see her engaging with refugees and with political concerns. Um, and all the while in the kind of um, 50s and subsequently, she's writing essays which deal with political themes. I know um, you know, House of Theory is thinking about ideology, socialism. Um, she's got um, the moral decision about homosexuality in 64. She writes about uh, a pressing political issue at the time about the legalization of homosexuality and, and, and onwards, right up until the latter part of her life when her radicalism is in decline and she is a more moderate kind of liberal thinker. And she includes a kind of uh, powerful section on politics in a metaphysics as a guide to morals in 1992 which i think is worth looking at um closely and i will do so later but i would like to convey the fact that you know murdoch is marvelous in evoking personal relationships the kind of pleasures and the dangers of being in love and of people thinking about themselves and their spiritual quests but she's also very good at 
at getting into focus what it means to be in the public world and to engage in political um, connections. Um, and what's it like to be a migrant with uncertain rights? Um, what's it like to live in a world after the Holocaust? She is someone who engages with the big questions, I think, about politics in the 20th century, which still persists. So she is someone who's on the borders of literature, philosophy, and of politics. So that's how I see her. Yes, and I, th I think that's a really good um, brief overview of, of her, her work, really. And of course, it doesn't, these ideas are not just contained within these essays, that, some of the essays that we're going to be talking about later, but they do, you know, they, they expand outwards in, into, um, into her novels, but also into, into her um, work and activism as well. So Leslie, um, your work and um, thinking about uh, your, your research into her uh, sort of political and philosoph philosophical thinking in the 1950s, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that, and also your work as a um, political activist and how her, um, her writing and thinking supports your own work. Great. Well, I've only come to Murdoch uh, quite newly, actually. Um, about three years ago, a colleague of mine recommended that we read The Sovereignty of Good for a discussion group that we had on in the office. And at the time, I was, you know, beginning my dissertation research, focusing on figures like uh, John McDowell and Gadamer, focusing on themes of moral learning and disclosure. And when I read Murdoch, it was like a sort of lightning bolt struck me, where I was um, just yeah, aware of the fact that I'd encountered somebody who was illuminating those themes, but doing so in a way that felt human and real in a way that I didn't really encounter in moral philosophy as I had studied it previously. So reading Murdoch, um, it's such a fascinating experience to find someone who can shed such light on our ordinary everyday experiences and our relationships in a way that has such um, yeah, moral significance for how we can live better lives. And I find, you know, she'll give these really almost mystifying descriptions of a phenomenon where at first it's like, what, what is Murdoch meaning by this? To describe love as attention and imagination, as um, treating another human being as real. Like, of course I treat other human beings as real. But then you think it through in your own life and you come to realize that, well, actually, no, a lot of the time, my ego does intervene in these relationships, or it is easier to kind of breezily um, fall into the grooves of habit instead of paying real attention to another person. Whereas compassion and love seem to involve grappling with somebody in all of their complexity, which when you're engaged in political activism is extremely important to recognize that, uh, as Murdoch says, we're not merely sort of rational wills throwing our weight around in space, making sort of choices with you know pure freedom. Um, but instead, we are people with a historical context. We occupy a social and economic position. We have a personal history, and all of that kind of comes with us into the context of choice, for better or for worse. And maybe something important about. Uh, our moral life is learning to kind of recognize that and take some small control over it where we can and taking that seriously in other people is a way of sort of being able to meet them where they're at instead of uh, treating them as idealized agents, which is just purely unrealistic. People have a lot of baggage. So yeah, reading Murdoch I've found is both something that's entered into my dissertation research, which is now focusing entirely on Murdoch, 
as a philosopher whose moral approach to philosophy itself I take to be almost a moral approach to philosophy in that she wants us to pay a close attention to our subject matter, be alive to the ways in which we need to change if we're going to be able to bring that subject matter into view, um, and also be accountable for the fact that philosophy is not done in a vacuum and you know the philosophical culture of our day uh, can shape thought beyond just the sort of walls of academia or the ivory tower. So we need to be sort of responsible in doing philosophy, but it also can shape how we see ourselves as political actors as well in the way in which we do have to sort of approach um, our subject matter with the same kind of attention, responsibility, and compassion. So yeah, Iris Murdoch has definitely kind of fully entered my life in the last three years. Definitely sounds like it. And also, um, from what you're saying, it's, um, the, the, obviously the material we're going to be talking about later is, de is decades old, but, but yet still fresh and relevant. Yeah, definitely. The sorts of themes of um, attention and love and the difficulty of those things relate to us as, you know, modern human beings. And unfortunately, I don't think a terrible lot has changed in terms of the ways in which we're anxious, we're uh, hurried, it's difficult for us to pay attention to one another. And this can sort of affect us as both moral and political beings. So the lessons learned from Murdoch are definitely helpful for uh, contemporary activists as well as 1950s socialists. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and Vic, does, does um, what Leslie's been saying also chime with you and your reading of Murdoch? No, I think what Leslie's saying is really striking because it opens up a conversation across different generations, really, to think that Murdoch's 1950s work can speak to kind of feminist activists in the present. So I think that's really telling and it's something about the openness within which particularly those early essays are framed and just the number of questions that she leaves open so it feels at that, that stage Murdoch is thinking things through without having a very clear sense of where she might end up though those early essays are written with a kind of an intensity and a clarity that opens up these many issues. So I was interested in the kind of generation. So I met Murdoch partly in the 1960s when I was a student. And my teacher, who was John Simopoulos, was the person who the bell was actually mm, dedicated. Yeah, cool. yeah. So he introduced me to Murdoch's work and even opened up the possibility I might be supervised by her for some paper that we were doing. And there was something about in my relationship with John that was that it wasn't simply that he was interested in the ideas or like we were then doing kind of empiricist Locke, Barclay, Hume in the way that Oxford philosophy was then. But he was also interested in who I was. And there was a kind of recognition of the way that philosophy could both stand in the way, but also open up a kind of exploration of the world that I had grown up in and how to reflect and be in that. And from that, Murdoch was kind of a marginal figure that she was kind of known about. And some of the early essays were there, but not really central to the kind of moral philosophy that was taught at the time. 
And there was a certain kind of disquiet I felt, and I think a number of people felt who would have really liked, had more contact with Murdoch's philosophical writing than was available then. We were kind of thinking about the inadequacies of the moral philosophy, particularly the discussion, the endless discussion between hair on the one hand and foot on the others, and the kind of difficulties of really engaging with the social and political world, which we felt we wanted to do, even though we weren't necessarily very conscious of what worlds we were bringing with us to Oxford in the 60s at that time. We were encouraged in some way to think of ourselves as kind of rational selves in a kind of very masculine kind of way within a very kind of masculinist philosophical context at that time. And even though Murdoch was on the borders and there was Foote and Anscombe who were um, major figures, we didn't at that stage understand anything about the connections between them or their friendships or the ways that they'd been formed by a particular experience of being women philosophers in Oxford during the war. But what was clear in that generation of them as teachers is that she and Murdoch, it's quite important, emerged out of the kind of the anti-fascism of the 1930s and the politics, the CP politics that emerged. And then the Second World War and the impact of that on Murdoch and that and her generation. So that when it came to the late, the middle and then late 60s um, and the beginnings of the student movement, we were excited by reading Sovereignty and the essays in Sovereignty in a way that Leslie kind of alludes to both the, the reality, the aliveness and something about the sense of um, how moral theory could cross borders in the way that we're talking about. But at the same time, there was a kind of sense of Murdoch as a figure that wasn't really engaged with the kind of sexual politics that was around in the early 70s. Even though, if you look at the novels, there's a way in which the interrelationship between politics and sexuality were really important to her. There was a sense that the feminist politics of the 60s, which talked about the relation of the ways in which the personal is political, that feminist move, which influenced much of our philosophical and moral thinking, Murdoch stayed outside of. She didn't, so even though in her novels and in her work, she was really thinking out about personal relations and also relations of power and how they were exercised within personal relationships. There was also a certain kind of reluctance to identify with the kind of feminist movement and a fear that the feminist movement was somehow trying to introduce something about the distinctness or the distinctiveness of women's voices and women's difference in the way that Gilligan and Nell Noddings later talked about. Murdoch stood against that in some way. And in the way that she stood against it, 
there were there were certain ways in which her work remained not marginal both inspiring but also stood apart from some of the central aspects of the politics of that period so i've been interested in thinking about the generational differences and how hard it can be to communicate well across generations so that when leslie says quite rightly that those essays in the 50s really speak to the present that says something about a post 2008 reawakening of a kind of feminist activism and the way that there's still really important things that you can draw upon within murdoch but also questions to be raised of murdoch's moral thinking and the way that her moral thinking relates to her political thinking because there was a way that she remains somewhat wary of particularly marxist tradition even though i noted just this week that norman birnbaum said that in i think it must have been the late 50s or early 60s murdoch taught a course with someone else i'm not sure who on marx's concept of alienation mm. which was kind of interesting i didn't know that and that in that those lectures in that kind of series that she gave she was engaging with the kind of young marx which the middle late 60s generation my generation were really kind of inspired by as a way of bringing the personal and the political into relationship with each other and i think she does that really forcefully in the way that gary mentions in the context of the novels but there's also a way that even though she's in the boundaries or thinking across boundaries there's a way that she still maintains a certain hard boundary between when she's thinking about her philosophy work and when she's doing her novels i actually don't think that the self conception that she has is always very helpful um in the tv talk that she gave on literature and philosophy with mcgee there's a real sense that she says that no an insistence of actually maintaining a boundary uh, in opposition to the you know to the quote that we're working with and she was anxious about bringing the literature and the philosophy into relationship with each other though i think gary's absolutely right there is a way that within the novels she's working out both her philosophical ideas and her politics but she's often doing it in within a kind of individualized kind of way yeah she does set set up this um what well, I, i think it's a slightly artificial boundary um, between the philosophy and the literature i mean she's quite right to say that you know um philosophy clarifies and and, and literature can mystif should mystify in, in some regards but um i think perhaps that's um uh, going going a little bit beyond the um the, the remit of the podcast i'm sure but i'm sure we'll cover it in the, in a later podcast now now um vic and leslie have both chosen um, um an essay each to talk about as as has gary but vic and leslie have both chosen essays from the 50s now if if you're listening uh, and you have this beside you or or even if you don't do do um pick up your copy of existentialists and mystics because we're going to be talking about vic um vic's going to be talking about metaphysics and ethics in 1957 Uh, and then Leslie's going to talk about um, the essay the house of theory house of theory from 1958 then we're going to jump into the 1980s and Gary's going to talk about 
Morals and Politics, um, which is chapter 12 of Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. But uh, Vic, let's come back to you. Why did you choose this particular um, essay and, and what's it saying to you about her um, stance um, at this particular point? Why I was struck by this in, in a way that was echoed by Leslie, I'm thinking that in these essays, she's kind of struggling to try and think across certain boundaries. Um, and there's a way that the influence of Simone Weil and the Platonism that Weil introduces her to in a particular kind of way is much more present in sovereignty in providing a certain kind of structure of sovereignty, which is framed around perception, the way that our egoism makes it hard for us to see in our relationships people as for who they are in some kind of real way. And that that ego, egoism blocks us. And there's a, there's a kind of stronger structure in the sovereignty essays, which I think does emerge out of the focus on Weil's notion of attention. Um, and I think those essays are really important. But why I was interested in these particular essays is that there's a kind of openness, there's a kind of exploration before um, not that she's closing down, but she's thinking about the nature of morality in a way that connects it to social life. So she starts the metaphysics and ethics chapter in a way that critiques the tradition of moral theory that frames it around notions of individual choice and freedom as choice. And she frames that in a kind of critique of the way in which moral theory wants to then draw a very sharp distinction between moralizing and the language of morals in the hope that if you focus upon the language of morals and the concepts we use in our moral theory, you can do that in relationship to kind of a logical or a linguistic analysis. And I remember that very much as a strong tendency in my own kind of education at that time. But there was a feeling that there had to be something more in relationship to morality that she wasn't or wasn't being talked about. In terms of my own history, I came out of kind of Holocaust second generation family history. And I wanted or felt a need to find a moral theory that could really help me reflect upon that background experience. But I'd learned through my schooling to think that that was part of my background, but my philosophy had to be framed in universal terms. So in the idea that philosophy was to do with clarity and uh, clear thinking while literature was to do with mystifying. I felt that I needed to kind of be able to mystify philosophy a bit more and open up these kind of questions that the, that the tradition of moral philosophy at that time were in fact closing down. And in this essay of metaphysics, the metaphysics and ethics, uh, Murdoch is doing exactly that. She's showing both the appeal to the form of moral theory in terms of a kind of um, a certain kind of moral rationalism, the focus on individual choice, 
And she's saying, if we go along with that, and it looks like we're developing a universal theory that can see that what morality is doing is recommending or um, is um, proposing certain kinds of actions that people should take, that we seem to have a moral theory that closes down upon the very concerns that she thinks we need to open up about, which is the way in which uh, morality is part of the world. That's why I was kind of struck by this. And I thought, so that even though we're thinking about politics, it's through thinking about morality in this essay that Murdoch is in fact framing a sense of politics. She does that through partly through a notion of freedom and then partly as a contrast between liberal versions of freedom and what she calls natural law theory. And it, the natural law theory is very overgeneralized. Um, it's not necessarily meant to be thought seriously, but it's a way of thinking allows her to think both about Christianity, but also about Marx or Marxism in a way that recognizes that through human beings recognizing themselves as part of a particular kind of theoretical framing, this emerges from Hegel, that people can come to know themselves through this social or historical process. Um, and Murdoch says there's something true in that. There's something true in the idea that we have to be able to engage the histories and cultures that we have been brought up in, the traditions, and we have to recognize that people can take, and she talks about this in terms of moral vision also, that people can take very different kind of positions and um, can disagree quite radically about the terms of these different traditions. And Murdoch's often really interested, interested in framing those, in the differences between her break from Christianity, her recognition of the importance of Buddhism, but Buddhism because it gives her a way of thinking about consciousness and different levels of consciousness. And in thinking about different levels of consciousness, Murdoch, and this remains a theme right the way through into um, uh, the metaphysics, it's a central concern of the metaphysics, of what is the process or practices, both in terms of moral theory, but also in terms of spiritual practices, through which our consciousness develops or shifts over time. And Murdoch, strikingly, there are two things, just two things I want to say about it. One is the importance of the notion of experience that remains really important to Murdoch, learning from experience and holding that notion of experience and thinking that um, you're in some way shaped by your experience. When I met Murdoch later in the early 1980s, after having written this work with Larry Blum, on Simone Vale, it was very interesting coming, meeting her. We met her in a pub in Oxford and she was interested in meeting us because we were both vile scholars and she was interested in thinking about vile. But what was really striking in personal relationship with Murdoch is 
she was actually interested in who I was and what my refugee family background was. She didn't necessarily expose herself very much or very easily, but she focused in on you very directly and focused on the way that you were formed through these histories and formative experiences. That you as an individual wasn't just this rational, moral self-making choices, but you were formed through particular histories and cultures. Very nicely onto what um, Leslie's going to be talking about now. Um, because we're moving on a year, just a year, into in House of Theory. Um, and of course, in, in that essay, um, Murdoch's contending with um, the, I suppose, the de decrease in, in interest in socialism, or at least um, active socialism within Britain, um, which is obviously quite di a quite different thing from what she's writing in Metaphysics and Ethics just a, a year prior. And Leslie, do you want to talk, talk us into that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Um, so my research on Murdoch centers on the 1950s. So I see this paper as kind of a set in a context where while she had left behind her commitment to the Communist Party of Great Britain, uh, which she joined during her undergrad at Oxford, um, her writings are rife with ambivalent references to Marxist philosophy, but she still retains this sort of interesting, critical, uh, sort of dissident understanding of socialism and sees an important uh, critique of it that demands a more attentive um, uh, socialism that has more friction with working class people that tries to help them make sense of their experiences and sort of incorporate them into theoretical activities rather than speaking at them as an important transformation that needs to take place if socialism is going to have a future in Britain. But I find it really interesting. Um, I relate a lot to her story, that is to say, because a lot of the time when somebody's had extremely radical views or you know strong political positions when they're a younger person, like she was when she was at Oxford, about 20 years old, um, a lot of the time it's easy to kind of tell a story about growing up and leaving these things behind. But when we read a house of theory, you know, she's 40 but or 39 when she's writing this. And we see somebody who's mature, um, who's developed and been critical of, you know, her past relationship with Marxism, but she still retained, you know, a strong commitment to socialism itself, which is only different in that it's kind of left behind the sort of metaphysical dogmatism that her earlier Marxism had been rife with um, and developed a a commitment to paying closer attention to uh, the lives of um, working class individuals and their everyday experiences, attempting to incorporate those into theory, um, and attempting to sort of fuse the strengths of moral language with theory. So moral language viewed as a way in which people can develop a richer understanding of their own lives, especially concepts like exploitation and uh, alienation are ones that she holds up as uh, particularly important for this. So in that sense, yeah, I think it's important to see her career as one of sort of evolution and dissidence, some disillusionment and uh, a growing richness and nuance and attention to reality rather than sort of leaving behind, um, you know, the radicalism of youth or something like that. Because similarly, I've had a sort of 10-year political career of my own at this point. I'm, I'm 30 years old, I'll admit. Um, 
And oftentimes when you're a young person involved in politics, there is this attitude that, you know, you're going to grow out of it. You're, you know, a campus radical, but then you're going to get a job and grow up. But I guess I haven't left campus. So, and I think it's borne out when we notice a lot of the parallels yes, of between her own career and that of other members of the British New Left. So which, this was a movement uh, to leave behind some of the tired orthodoxies and Stalinism of the Communist Party in favor of a renewed and more humanistic socialism. So Murdoch contributed to a journal of the British New Left that was edited by E.P. Thompson, the socialist historian and brother Frank Thompson, who was her uh, friend at Oxford, late friend. Um, and then she finally penned A House of Theory in 1958, uh, which is part of a collection alongside other sort of dissident socialist writers who wanted to sort of speculate about how socialism could be saved in, uh, I guess, going into the 60s, rather than allowing it to wither as it seemed like it was starting to do in this post-war period. So this is um, a work in which she criticizes orthodox Marxist tendencies, um, only to diagnose them and show it can be done about it so that socialism might have a future. So she begins this um, paper by writing, the socialist movement in this country is suffering from a loss of energy. The more progressive section of society seems able in this time to provide very little in the way of guidance and inspiration. There is a certain moral void in the life of this country. So this is a paper where Murdoch notes a lot of historical reasons why socialism was losing popularity. So there's 20 years of almost full employment, improved standards of living, the development of the welfare state, uh, growing knowledge of what Soviet life had really been like behind the Iron Curtain under Stalin. And she herself writes um, as largely a result of the working class movement itself, together with the development of new economic techniques, we have the welfare state. Many of the most obvious injustices and deprivations have been remedied. The rich are not so rich, nor the poor no, so poor, and there's been a serious attempt to create equality of opportunity. So the sense of exploitation has faded and the struggle for equality tends to take the form of the struggle for higher wages. That's to say sort of labor unions fighting for, you know, particular ameliorations of their working conditions rather than, you know, trying to struggle towards uh, transformation of society itself and its economic system. Uh, she also, um, I think it's interesting to see that this is also linked to the sorts of cultural um, and philosophical attitudes that she's discussing in her moral philosophy. So she diagnoses the waning of socialism in terms of a sort of empiricist cultural temperament, which is also at work in the writings of figures like Hare where we don't want to sort of think of the task of the political theorist or the moral theorist to provide substantive uh, moral answers, yeah. um, but rather, you know, you're operating in a context where there are facts on the one hand and uh, moral claims on the other. And the task of the socialist writer was seen as being rather like a technician um, describing the relative efficiency of different schemes for achieving goals like equalizing distribution, relieving poverty, and so forth, rather than developing moral and social concepts that would help real working class people to understand their own experiences under capitalism and to connect these to experiences, or to, or to connect these experiences to the need for systemic economic change. So a concept like alienation uh, can both help someone to bring into view what is harmful about their workplace, you know, that 
They feel like just a mindless cog in a machine. There's no place for the exercise of imaginative judgment. They don't feel like a real person when they're at work. This concept can also help that person to connect um, the sense of frustration to a systemic critique of how the, or the economy works at present, the sort of hierarchical organization of workplaces in particular, and to a vision of a society in which work is not alienated in this way. So this moral concept, uh, when we allow it into our theory, uh, can help point towards um, a critique of society as it is and to help us to understand what an ideal socialist future might look like. It's interesting also in terms of what you say, Leslie, in terms of wanting a, a deeper moral language and the, the poverty of the moral language on the left at that time and whether alienation, say, or estrangement become seen as examples of a richer moral language that can, in Murdoch's way there, actually relate back to work experience, because it's one of the few places that she talks about work. I don't know that she does too much in the novels talk about work context, but in this essay, she is talking about work. So there's a, it's interesting whether it's a moral concept or a political concept, or a moral political concept, alienation. So whether her moral thinking, which is there in that, you know, the essay, the metaphysics and ethics essay, links to her politics in, so how she thinks across the boundaries of the moral and the political, I think it's really And that's a brilliant place, actually, to bring Gary in, because we're gonna move um, forward about 30 years um, into, um, the, the the lectures of course the the, uh, the, the lectures with the Gifford lectures um, written in, in the 1980s but of course then made into metaphysics as a guide to morals in 1992. Gary, talk, tell us a little bit about um, chapter 12 because that is morals and politics. Moral and politics. Yeah. Where 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 has she got to in her life? Um, well, uh, she's come a long way. She's done. She's written a, a lot of novels this, is true. this time, and uh, yes. and a lot of essays. Um, I was interested in listening to um, what Leslie and Victor were saying, and um, and it's it's interesting just in those years there, metaphysics and ethics, and a house of theory that she is she is doing different things. She's doing different things from the contemporary moral philosophers whom she was um, engaging with. In that she brings in history. And she brings in continental thought, um, and she brings in a lot of different thinkers. She's got a wide and kind of broad mind, which can bring in um, yeah. lots of things. She's interested in history. I mean, and in that discussion of a house of theory, she's interested in how things are changing, how things are changing in socialism. Its, its opportunities and possibilities have changed in that post-war world with the realities of a bureaucratic welfare state and the kind of success of commodification post-war. Um, and in that metaphysics and ethics, she, she is Hegelian in some sense, in that she takes the modern or the contemporary world of liberal moral philosophy, liberal kind of society, as explaining, as it were, how these moral theories, which focus upon a kind of liberal idea of choice, but leave behind visions of um, substantive moral goods which have been held and which are still held in some circles. So she's, she's interesting in that she can bring in a lot of things. She's interested in wide dimensions, continental as well as kind of Anglo-Saxon philosophy. And she's interested in the politics of her time. 
Now, to take this on, one story would be to say that by the 1980s and by 1992, when uh, Murdoch wrote Met Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, she's moved on. The radical, um, and sadly, as Leslie would, would bemoan perhaps, the, the kind of radical kind of um, Iris Murdoch has kind of transformed into a much more conservative one. Um, and it is true that she, her politics have moved. She embraces kind of liberal and the rule of law in a which is much more kind of um, much more interest than it had been previously. And she's also aware of what she calls politics. So there are differences, but I would also to some of the bring affinities between York and the early um, and I think in politics within metaphysics as a guide to morals is interesting. Um, I guess at the back of it is a real world politics. Now Murdoch, I said, at the end of the war was, at the Second World War, was by her own first-hand experience of the appalling nature of um, the plight of refugees at the end of that war and the their abjectness their kind of lack of kind of um, their lack of really to enable and it was an overpowering experience for her a bureaucratic way in which they were helped was problematic as well and it seeps into as I said before her novels like the like deals with dimensional aspects of, of the life that refugees and migrants post-war UK. You powerful migrants like and you get very abject and dependent um, migrants like Neem or Dressmaker. You get Poles who are attracted to kind of the UK through or come to the UK through working to, to get to get work um, and all the way through this you see economic and political and moral dimensions of the plight of refugees um, which is very interesting now in 1992 and in morals and politics Murdoch is reflecting upon or the work is informed by her experience of the dangers of tyrannical regimes which can cause migration, which can cause a flight of refugees and the suffering of refugees in those uh, states which have been subject to tyranny, like Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. So here, I guess, her kind of uh, move away from radicalism is a move away from the attractions of utopianism. And in 58, in A House of Theory, she had framed um, phenomenological perspectives on future utopian kind of socialist communities as one way of moving forward and appealing to people. Whereas here, she is firmly against utopianism and it does reflect her real world experience of the refugees, which she saw at first hand. But she kept in contact with kind of um, people in, in Eastern Europe who were suffering under the um, under the Soviet-style socialism in those countries, and she called it out as being a, a set of political practices which were which were awful and repressive. And I guess she was right to call it out, and um, it certainly did influence her. She also was struck by the um, 
by the kind of repressiveness of of uh, Maoist China when she visited it. Um, she she asked the kind of tour guide or party official, you know, what about kind of homosexuals in in China, and and of course did not um, receive um, an answer, which which was in which was. Um, I think um, I think they said that they just they, they didn't have them in China. Yeah, they, she was told that they didn't yeah. have homosexuals, which is even more kind of um, absurd. So yeah. she was very struck with the dangers of kind of um, authoritarianism and tyrannical regimes, and she she in this short chapter in Metaphysics as Guide to Morals, she highlights the need for a politics, if you like, of imperfection of the recognition of imperfection and of the dangers of um, the dangers of an all-powerful state which can cause great, great damage to individual lives. So there is this move to protect individuals and in doing so she invokes um, what she calls the British empirical philosophers like Hobbes, like Locke, who are kind of setting out kind of the need to protect or to or, um, setting out in, in a kind of um, uncomplicated way, in some ways, the need to kind of um, ensure that there is, as it were, the rule of law and that there is, uh, in, in Locke's case at least, the protection of rights for individuals. And Hume, she, she invokes in this. Um, but when, when so, she, I just wondered, when she, because she wrote, as you said, she wrote the, the against criminal of homosexuality and she wrote a pamphlet it, she was wrote quite, something in, in man and society in 64 yeah and that and she had a very strong in some way um pro lgbt kind of politics but it wasn't framed uh, in terms of anything to do with group identity it was always at a level of individuals in the book so and in the novels, it's at the level of kind of an open acceptance, which was very much part of that 50s culture. But there was a kind of, she didn't necessarily, even in the later work, the metaphysics, she would she have, what would she have thought of like um, gay liberation? A group? Yeah, I was, going, I was going to come on to some of those questions, which I think are pertinent. Um, so to go back, um, in this morals and politics. She does set out the need for rights. She does set out the need for a kind of common and garden focus upon the, the problems, the potential problems of politics and of the need for the protection of individuals. Um, in so doing, she does distinguish between the personal and the political or the public in that um, her moral philosophy is one which is guided by this notion of a kind of pursuit of moral perfection, um, as opposed to the mere, as it were, acceptance of the um, choices, equivalent choices by individuals. There is this sense that there is, and should be, as it were, um, a, a, a kind of an impetus to be guided by a sense of um, order and by a sense of, um, of kind of moral perfection, which I think for her is not an abstract kind of perfection. It's one which which is designed to kind of enable us to question what we do, so that we always, as it were, have in mind to improve and to 
um, get a perspective which isn't selfish, which is one that takes account of others in a kind of thoroughly adequate way. So she's got the pursuit of personal protection on the one hand, and against that she's got the sense of a public protection of individuals so that they can pursue this, um, their um, personal kind of pursuit of protection. So there is a divide between the personal and the public. But Murdoch recognises that the personal and the public cannot be simply um, divided so that completely different universes. There are connections between the two. She does, um, she would say that there is no kind, and she actually does say that there is no kind of um, clear divide between um, self-regarding actions and other regarding actions Mill referred to to justify individual liberty. For her, these questions are, uh, there is an overlap between the two. Um, and that overlap, I think, is worth pursuing in her work because another fact, factor in her life is, uh, in her later politics here, is that she felt, given the need to protect individuals and given the politics of protection, she thought that what was paramount of importance was to have fundamental axioms or rights which protected individuals. And that was the job of politics. But that historical dimension of her thinking, which um, comes up in those early early writings in the 50s, been, which have been referred to before, is still at play in 1992, because she recognizes that these axioms, even though they purport they will be basic and kind of providing protection, they will change over time. And they change over time because there is no, as it were, a historical standpoint. There is always experience which is changing. And this is something that she, um, she has kind of um, throughout her life, that sense of history and experience, lived experiences always at a particular time and so on. And here she sees a role for the personal moral ideals to have an influence upon the public world. And although she doesn't write extensively about this, I think this is where some of the group politics which um, which Vic was talking about might come in, in that she says that in terms of the changing axioms and rights which she's kind of noted and which she sees as important, she sees one positive development, and this is also referred to in her unpublished um, manuscript on Heidegger, that one of the achievements of the 20th century has been the increase in rights for women and this more egalitarian kind of world of equality of rights as, as a set of axioms has been influenced by those who've seen um, the pursuit of that in, um, in various groups, I think, like feminists, would have had an influence here. Um, and in, to that extent, it is positive. Um, but where I would agree with Vic is that it's, Victor, it's not um, elaborated upon, but she does see a connection between the personal and the political, but she also wants to separate the two. And I guess most of us would want some, of, some personal life which would be outside a public kind of um, um, control, but she does see the personal and moral aspirations in the personal as translating into the public arena. And there will be, she sees, um, you know, a changing set of axioms and, um, and possibly a changing frame for those axioms to be delivered in that she opens the possibility of international govern 
roots in that section on morals and politics. It's highly kind of dense, really, they, this chapter on morals and politics, and really contains so many ideas. And I think it's interesting. I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that you can see that it informs, perhaps, one of her novels, the late novel, The Book and the Brotherhood of 1987. Uh, because in that book, um, what happens in that book is that, um, is that there's a kind of, um, there had been a kind of um, um, agreement between some ex-Oxford um, uh, undergraduates to finance a book, a radical political book, which would be a great grand book on political economy, which would do, do would perform wonders in, as it were, illuminating the political world. And it's set up to be written by David Primman, who's a kind of radical and Marxist. And um, meanwhile, these Oxford friends, um, read by Gerald, Gerard Hernshaw, get older and much less radical. And David Crimmond has not written the novel. Um, and uh, Crimmond and, uh, and Gerard Hernshaw argue about it at one point. And, and Gerard talks about the dangers of Marxism and, uh, sorry, um, Hernshaw talks about the dangers of Marxism and how the virtues of parliamentary government. But when the book actually comes out, Her Gerard Hernshaw is forced to admit that, hey, this radicalism and this utopianism of, um, of this great book actually does do something in that it forces us to think and to think through what we're doing. So I think Murdoch at the very end there is not saying that her focus upon the political imperfection and the need for rights is the only game in town, that it is worthwhile having theories which are challenging and which are radical, which push us. She's not like Leotard calling for the end of grand narratives. She's recognizing their changing historical fate, but she's still including them. So overall, I would say that Murdoch, in her thinking on politics, remains of interest right up to um, the um, metaphysics as a guide to morals. And partly because she's such an interesting character. She brings in history. She brings in a, a, an interest in moral theory. She brings in her awareness of kind of British empiricists. But she also throws in, in this section on morals and politics, a, a consideration of Adorno, whom she'd obviously been reading. So I think, um, and she's also throughout her life influenced by the real world of politics, which she knew of at first hand. Um, so once again, I think, even by the end of her life, um, I think she's interesting and she's surprising. There are always nuances of surprise there. And throughout, there are connections, I think, between her theoretical work and her um, novels, and um, as, as kind of Miles was saying, perhaps not the place to get fully into this, but I think it's worthwhile, it's, it's perfectly legitimate for her to say that there are differences in philosophy, between philosophy and literature, and it's also perfectly um, understandable that she would say that her novels are not expressly political, but what she means by that is that I think that they don't deal with the institutional paraphernalia of politics, yeah. but they do deal with some burning questions of politics, and throughout they deal with public worlds which are important for pursuing moral 
themes and political themes. So I'll leave it there for the minute. We've got a few minutes left, and um, what I'd like to to do really is, is to invite both um, Leslie and, and then Vic to kind of reflect on um, what Gary's just said, and also, of course, on the on the thirty forty years um, post the essays that they were they were um, discussing earlier, and um, and I suppose where Murdoch goes really in her life and in her politics. I think a lot of what Gary had to say was really illuminating uh, in sense of. I think Murdoch's somebody that we definitely have to read sort of in context. And it's something that she also invites us to do when we're reading other philosophers. She writes, I think, in an, On God and Good, that when we're reading a philosopher, we have to ask ourselves, what are they afraid of? And I think in the 1950s, um, her sort of responses to liberal political philosophy and uh, attitudes and moral philosophy are in some sense animated by her recognition of its growing influence and the waning of the appeal of socialism, which I think we can see in the ways in which a house of theory sort of echoes her earlier critiques of moral philosophy, but allows us to see how these same sorts of uh, empirical attitudes towards substantive moral judgments can make it difficult for us to see the importance of rich moral political concepts like alienation and exploitation. So there's a way in which the sort of moral philosophy is scary or she's afraid of it in the sense that it has these sorts of dangers for the prospects of the sort of um, morally infused political theory that we need if we're going to you know, get over this hump of waning socialism. But then Gary points out that, you know, later in her life, she's had these other experiences where she's seen uh, some of the sort of frightening realities that come out of utopian uh, communist politics in China and uh, in the Soviet Union. So we can see that, you know, perhaps later in her life, she's uh, practicing philosophy against that background in a different historical context and with a different awareness of the sort of consequences of certain forms of thinking. So I think in that sense, uh, we can recognize Murdoch as somebody who's constantly trying to sort of be alive to the need to be attentive to uh, empirical realities, empirical in the rich moral sense, not the narrow scientific sense, but also to be accountable to the possible effects of moral theorizing and to be responsive to the sort of problems of our day uh, without clinging to sort of um, a, a devotion to certain kinds of theories or pictures when they're not borne out or they have these sorts of dangers that we need to be sensitive to. Just that she sees a part in relationship to education in Britain. So there were particular moves that she makes towards Thatcher and the political right in the country. So, and she hates Scargill and the miners' strike. So there were particular moments where I think it's less hopeful than Leslie's kind of framing it that there that her politics do move to the right in a particular kind of way. And the perf I'm not even sure about the notion of perfectionism framed in relationship to Murdoch. I think one of the things that she was alive to right the way through was a kind of liberal progressivism that's there in the House of Theory and how in those post-war years that liberal progressivism meant that the notion of evil or wrongdoing or really bad things having happened 
was something that the culture hadn't taken on. There was a kind of liberal progressivism that became the politics of the time. And some of that is reflected in the kind of universal um, kind of government visions that you get in some of the much later work. So I do think we've also got to be questioning of her politics and knowing that where her focus shifts isn't is to some kind of recognition of shifts of consciousness at an individual level which is where she's very strong but if we think about black lives matter and the, and we think about the moral language that is available in the present the notion of life mattering there's lots of ways in which murdoch is really helpful in thinking that each life and each black life in particular ways matters and and there we must end. But um, I must say that I've learned so much from this this podcast, and it's um, hi highlights again the kind of the, the multiple ways in which Murdoch in engages with uh, with the world um, through her politics, and in, indeed all three of you um, have highlighted um, particular areas of that. So my thanks to Gary, to Leslie, and to Vic, and thank you to list for listening. <laughs>